Adam King is on the line. Mr. King is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto who recently wrote a piece for theconversation.com entitled California's Gig Worker Battle Reveals the Abuses of Precarious Work in Canada Too. Adam King joins us from Toronto. Mr. King, Adam, good morning and thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. It's nice to have you with us. Let's unpack a few details here, Adam, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of the position you've taken on it. Let's remind our listeners, if you would, for a few seconds, of the uh, the nature of Proposition 22. In addition, voting for President Trump and all of those Senate and uh, House of Representatives and down-ballot candidates in the state of California, they voted for initiatives, one of which was called Proposition 22, and it was all about the gig economy. Me, the details that we heard up here in Canada were all about Uber drivers. Fill us in, Adam, please. Yeah, sure. So in California, they vote on directly on ballot initiatives. I think I believe there were ten of them. Proposition Twenty Two is essentially about regulating gig and contract work. And so, the uh, California's Assembly had passed a bill recently to stop the misclassification as in, of independent contractors. And Proposition 22 was basically a move by the tech companies to reverse that or to create an exemption for themselves so that Assembly Bill 5 didn't apply to them so So, they could continue to... Yes, go ahead. No, no, Assembly Bill 5, the bill that the legislature passed, Adam, just for clarification purposes, what category or how did they describe those Uber drivers and other gig workers? Well, the bill was broader than just the tech workers. So okay. it was meant it was meant to stop misclassification broadly. It still contained some exemptions, so for people like salespeople, real estate agents, things like that, but it was meant to apply to people who do driving services, uh, delivery, things like that. So it definitely it would have encompassed Uber, Lyft. Instacart, those companies. So who decided that Proposition 22 was necessary to create that exemption specifically for Uber and Lyft drivers? Was it the owners of Uber and Lyft, Adam? Yes, it was. It was It was a coalition of technology companies led primarily by Uber, since they are the most uh, flush with cash, uh, that created uh, a, a campaign called Yes on 22 um, to lobby on behalf of passing this ballot initiative and creating an exemption for themselves. So what did that do? I mean, what, why, uh, what benefit is it to a company like Uber to have its employees designated as contract workers rather than employees? Well, it exempts them from having to pay things like into workers' compensation, unemployment insurance contributions. It also means that they don't have to abide by minimum labor standards legislation. So, for example, Uber drivers don't have to receive a minimum wage or vacation pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the minimum basic standards that are outlined in labor standards legislation doesn't apply to people who are independent contractors. Now, does that same uh, package of, of uh, applications, Adam, also apply? And I'm looking at just a straight-across-the-table comparison. Does that set of, of rules also apply equally to taxi drivers? Uh, in some cases, it does. In other cases, it, it doesn't. So many taxi driver companies themselves also have independent contractors, but it, that's a relatively recent phenomenon since the 
taxi company, taxi uh, business itself has been deregulated as well. Okay. So as in terms of recent phenomena, how long has, has this whole Uber thing been around? It started in California or in that part of the world. So clearly they have not a, a, a couple of years on us. But how long has Uber been a thing, Adam? Well, not that long. I mean, only a few years since the app-based technology has been around. Um, I mean, they present themselves as a, as a novel innovation by you know, connecting drivers and riders through right. an app. But essentially what it is is a dispatch service. It's not really that different than phone dispatching, um, even though they present it as being rather innovative. Uh, okay, so it's, and that's, I agree. And you just download the app and uh, you make the connections and off you go. Now, t- as far as the drivers are concerned, when the companies put together this uh, campaign to see this Proposition 22 adopted so they could have an exemption and their Uber drivers wouldn't become permanent employees, how did the drivers respond? Clearly, they, they had other other ideas, I'm sure. But did they have a campaign that matched the one that was being mounted against them? They did have a pretty concerted campaign. Labor organizations organized um, for a number of months. The problem was, of course, that there was a massive fundraising gap between the two campaigns. Yes, on 22, the tech company's initiative raised over $200 million. Uh, the labor organizations could barely manage to raise $20 million, which is unsurprising given the asymmetry in power between the two. Um, but they did hold rallies, uh, petition campaigns. And it was successful in terms of raising awareness about the initiative, but it ultimately uh, not enough to, to win the ballot. So I'm trying to figure out the the tech companies that raised this whacking huge amount of money to really get their point across. The advantage to these Silicon Valley companies, did they have an ownership position in Uber or Lyft or any of these other companies? I'm trying to figure out why they were so uniformly shoulder to shoulder uh, in support of Proposition 22. Well, I would suggest that it's largely because their business model is dependent on keeping the people who work for them or according to them don't work for them as independent contractors. Um, So, for example, the UC Berkeley Labor Center did a study recently that found that over a five-year period, Uber and Lyft alone saved over $400 million in not paying their, uh, what what they would have paid in terms of workers' compensation, uh, contributions, employment insurance, and other taxes. Right. So... They have a massive incentive to keep the model the way that it is. Okay, now you mentioned the labor organizations and the counter campaign mounted by uh, representatives of, and I'm sure lots of the drivers and, and as well. So, what was their what was the thrust of their message? We know what the, the what the the Silicon Valley companies what they wanted, and they were ultimately successful. What was the counter pitch, though, Adam? Well, the counter pitch was essentially that the law had already been passed with Assembly Bill 5. People had elected their representatives to the California Assembly. They had lobbied on behalf of this law, voted people in, and it had passed. So the law had changed. So their position was essentially that Uber and Lyft should have to abide by the law like other employers. And uh, so, and of course, the, the, the proposition was all about creating a, an exemption to the law. So now, um, how close was the outcome, by the way? Um, it was fairly close, 55.8% uh, in favor. 
Okay. So now, does that uh, proposition that, that uh, becomes adopted, and so the, is, is it a permanent exemption then for uh, contract workers like Uber and Lyft drivers? Is that the outcome of Proposition 22? Essentially, yes, that is the outcome. The law contains, Proposition 22 now contains what's called a seventh-eighth rule. Essentially, if you want to make any modifications to the law going forward, seven-eighths of those in the legislature would have to vote in favor of whatever that modification is. So it's a pretty steep hurdle to make any changes in the future. So it does look like this is indefinitely the law of the land for tech companies. So now that uh, th- that battle was fought specifically in California, Adam, and you your article uh, at theconversation.com uh, looks to how this might seep across the border north into Canada as well. But what other states have gone through this uh, similar uh, labor uh, conflict, if any? Well, these types of conflicts with Uber and Lyft and other uh, tech-based companies have been taking place all across not only the United States, but across the world. Australia has had similar problems, the UK with Deliveroo, Canada, of course. Um, There are no other laws quite like Proposition 22 in any of the other states, but the technology companies have indicated, based on the success in California, that they plan to roll this out as, as soon as they can in other states. Now, California is kind of unique because it has this ballot initiative process. So it won't look the same, I'm sure, when it comes to other states, but um, labor organizations across the country need to be ready for it. Okay. So what's the status of Lyft and Uber in Canada? We're in British Columbia. We're really new to the party, Adam. The government out here, municipal and provincial, dragged their heels on this forever, but now we finally have it to one extent or another. Uh, in Toronto, you've had it much longer than we have. So what's the, what's the story here in Canada uh, uh, with this company uh, uh, basically coast to coast? Well, Uber uh, recently had a case go to the Supreme Court, which was based on uh, Ontario, where a driver uh, had tried to essentially assert his rights under the Employment Standards Act there, which is the minimum employment standards legislation, claiming that he hadn't been paid uh, a minimum wage and that he was owed vacation pays or essential rights that any employee would have. Of course, Uber denies that they, uh, they are subject to that law. So, This case has already gone to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has cleared the way for a class action lawsuit. So Uber's facing similar challenges here in Canada as well. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out in British Columbia if similar issues arise, but... That's what's happened so far in Ontario. Quite a month that has been down in the States. Of course, they had the big election. And while most of us were hopelessly distracted by the Trump versus Biden situation, a lot took place uh, down ballot, including uh, states voting to decriminalize marijuana. Florida voted to raise the minimum wage. And in California, they voted yes on Proposition 22, which is a new law allowing technology companies like Uber and Lyft to continue to classify their gig workers as independent contractors rather than employees. Our guest this time around is Adam King. Mr. King is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto, who recently wrote a piece which you can find at theconversation.com entitled California's Gig Worker Battle Reveals the Abuses of Precarious Work in Canada Too. And Adam, good to have you to stick around because this second half of your title uh, needs 
needs a little unpacking all by itself. Let's talk about what you mean by precarious work to begin with. Right. Well, by, by precarious work, we mean uh, work that sometimes falls in the non-standard category, meaning that it's usually non-full-time, uh, has low income, insecure in a lot of ways. Um, and a lot of this results from the fact that it's, it's poorly regulated. Okay, so uh, so how would then would this be, uh, be? You also use the verb abuse. So how to connect those two dots, if you will, please? Well, in the case of the technology companies, the abuse really comes from the fact that what they're doing is skirting the law, um, creating an incentive structure for other employers to do the same. Really, um, by not having to abide by these basic standards that we've set up, sort of as a society to have a, a social minimum that we accept that all workers deserve, uh, they're creating a sort of incentive structure where other employees simply can't compete with them. Well, of course, this is the land of the uh, the innovation and the, the rugged individual, and it is the USA, and you would expect nothing less, of course, Adam. But And, and by way of retaliation, or I'm trying to imagine some of the um, messaging that took place in the, the side that ultimately won this, the, the, the big money side. You said they raised a couple of hundred million, whereas the, uh, the opponents raised about 20 million, represented by some labor groups and so on. The messaging had to include something to the effect of, well, these people are independent contractors. They're not working for us full-time. They enjoy the flexibility of working for themselves when they want for as long as they want. They're the boss in the situation when they want to, when they want to go to work. So they're basically writing their own ticket. Yes, that was the messaging strategy. I had a feeling uh, it might be, yes. Yes, they leaned heavily on the, on the flexibility uh, aspect of it. But the problem, of course, with that is these companies, you know, drivers don't choose when the most rides are available. So they're working during rush hour and the competition is fierce. So, I mean, it's not as though Uber drivers can just choose when they work. Of course, they have to choose when the rides are available. Uh, also, there's just... Too many of them, for example, which is another problem. Um, and, you know, down the list, most of these people and a growing number of them are not. This is this is their primary source of income um, as gig work grows and sort of uh, colonizes more of the labor market. That argument that this is just a side hustle, something that you do for spare cash is is just not going to be defensible. Have you been able to determine subsequent to this COVID stuff beginning now back in March, there's it's not a long-term uh, point of time for an, analyzing and compiling data, Adam, but have you been able to to at least ascertain that subsequent to COVID lockdowns and, and loss of jobs and, and other uh, consequences of the pandemic, the labor force has been pushed around quite a bit. Have you been able to, to find out, for example, how how many people are doing this part-time gig work because they don't have any other work to do right now? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, of course, in the United States, it's quite different than, than in Canada because in Canada, we have had a fairly good um, stimulus response and social support. Exactly, like yeah. Europe. But in the United States, of course, the unemployment uh, check is over, the CARES Act is, is done, and the one-time $1,200 stimulus of course, was just one time. So for many, um, especially precarious workers like 
uh, like Uber drivers, there wasn't much choice but to continue to drive. Now, Uber did institute um, a package of financial uh, relief for drivers who had to quarantine because of coronavirus, but then there were also reports of them uh, letting people go or, you know, essentially preventing them from using the app if they filed for financial assistance. So, Oh, I see. Okay. Now, do you know anything about that in Canada where we have a much more um, uh, refined, for lack of a better word, uh, assistance infrastructure? For example, we have CERB and other federal programs that have allowed individuals in Canada to at least receive some cash uh has has have you been able to have a look at what what that's doing in the canadian labor market yes i mean the serb was an excellent intervention but we shouldn't forget also that the serb was necessary because the employment insurance program has been so inadequate for so long Mm -hmm. for example most people now who experience unemployment don't qualify for employment insurance. It's somewhere around a third of workers who experience unemployment can actually gain access to the program because of the ways that it's been restricted. And so the CERB was necessary to meet those needs. So I think going forward, there's going to have to be major changes to the employment insurance program so that these types of issues don't repeat themselves. Yeah, it's a very good point to make, and uh, it's, uh, that point is being echoed right through the front bench, actually, of the federal government, which is surprising because they never do anything wrong. But wait a second, we might be able to improve something, and that's the angle they're taking on the the need to reform unemployment insurance. The government itself is admitting that, yes, this this whole pandemic has, has created a focus on unemployment insurance and that whole system that definitely has been needed in, uh, in need rather of an overhaul for quite some time. Adam, back to your piece. You talk about, and you mentioned this already in our conversation, you talk about how this, the gig economy is, is affecting uh, labor markets around the world. And you mentioned Australia. And in the piece, you talk about Foodora, another delivery service we're familiar with here in Vancouver in Australia. What happened there? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a similar process whereby someone tried to um, apply or or appeal their rights, basically based on minimum standards. The system is somewhat different in Australia, but it was essentially the same idea. This person thought that they were owed the minimum wage, vacation time, such and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, their fair work ombudsman also agreed, um, ruled in the employee's favor, and Deliveroo essentially shut down their operations in Australia as a result. So is that possible, though, that the ultimate uh, solution to this may be, and we've seen it in, in some jurisdictions, not about this particular issue, but companies get fed up with, uh, with the regulation and the pressure that, that it brings, and they just basically say, you know what, we're just going to move. We're just going to shut her down and move. Is that a possibility, uh, or is, is, there, is there simply too much money to be made here? Well, I mean, it's kind of an open question, and it depends, I guess, to a certain extent on how jurisdictions coordinate or don't coordinate between them. Uh, if, if companies have the option of pulling out of various jurisdictions and they can still remain profitable, well, it's an, also a question about how profitable these companies actually are. But if they can still manage to generate revenue in other jurisdictions, mm-hmm. well, then I guess they'll choose to do that. But uh, my suggestion would be that companies, or sorry, uh, countries and, and regions, jurisdictions need to coordinate amongst themselves um, so that you don't have this kind of playing one against the other 
um, if there's a little bit more standardization and agreement in terms of basic labor standards, uh, this wouldn't be an option for them. Well, it's an interesting piece, and we're grateful that you've taken a few moments to share it with us and uh, walk us through the situation. We all saw this in California. It's straight down the coast from us here, Adam, but, well, we were a little distracted by the orange guy, and it's good of you to come back and fill in some of the gaps. California's gig worker battle reveals the abuses of precarious work in Canada, too. It's an interesting piece. It's at theconversation.com. Its author is Adam King from York University in Toronto. Thanks, Adam. Good to talk talk to you this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. Our next guest uh, came to my attention, at least, on CNN. I was just flipping through the website a couple of days ago and saw this uh, headline. Astronauts on a Mars mission will need to be conscientious to work well together. Well, I thought, okay. Dove into the article and discovered the lead researcher behind some of the information CNN was using is a Canadian from the University of Western Ontario in London. And she is a psychologist and a researcher and has been working on a a team, uh, working with a team on the Mars Project for quite a long time. It's a real pleasure to welcome Julie McMenamin to the program today to talk about not only going to Mars, but perhaps some of the lessons we've learned from studying what that might be like to apply to Canadians living in some cases in isolation through a long pandemic. Julie, good morning. Welcome to the program. Great to have you with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Uh, First of all, how long have you been working on the Mars Project? Um, Well, we've only been working on uh, this one individual Mars simulation mission so far. Um, So that happened back in 2018, but the preparation for it would have started a year prior. Um, And so that's sort of our, our, our first foray into looking at uh, Mars as a uh, issue for teams, um, but we've been working with all kinds of other teams for years before that. Indeed. Well, of course, we all got to. I mean, with this this whole business of extraterrestrial travel has been a human th- attraction for many, many years, Julia. And of course, that Matt Damon movie about going to Mars gave us a little bit of a clue as to what the what at least what the mission would look like in terms of the amount of time it's going to take. Just remind us, if you would, please, how long a commitment commitment someone and some humans are going to have to make in order to pull this off. Well, I think those those details are still sort of being hashed out and it will depend on sort of uh, where people are along the timeline of humans actually going to Mars, but certainly it takes a certain amount of time no matter what even just to get there and turn around and come back. Exactly. And so you're you know, you're looking at a span of years as opposed to a span of a few weeks or a few months um, that someone might go on a different type of isolated extreme excursion, you know, on Earth, maybe to Antarctica or that sort of thing, the kind of things that people are are used to doing. This is a whole different level in terms of the length of time and the distance away and and just the real level of isolation and, and just sheer distance from Earth. Absolutely. And of course, Musk has got another prototype rocket all set to launch within the next few days. This is all building gradually, incrementally towards uh, uh, the the actual mission. Now, tell us a little bit, Julia, please, if you would, about the Amadi 18 project. This is going on in the Middle East in the country of Oman. Have you been there? I have not been there myself, so my participation was completely remote in this project. But the Amity missions have been running for several years now by an organization in Austria called the Austrian Space Forum. Okay. 
And so what they do is about every other year, they choose another location on Earth that has some qualities that are similar to Mars in some ways that make it um, an interesting place to do experiments, to test out different, say, equipment like rovers or different processes to help prepare for Mars. And in our case, we were looking at the psychology of astronauts by studying uh, some of the team processes and experiences of a group of six what we call analog astronauts because they're not actually leaving the Earth. So right, right. Participating in this analog study, um, who participated in the 2018 Amity study, which happened to happen in Oman, like you mentioned. So now, that how long were they there in the kind of splendid isolation they would be in to replicate uh, some to, to some extent life on Mars? So they were there for about two months. It was cut short for, for a few different reasons. Um, there's always some logistical challenges, even with organizing projects like this on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they were there about two months. So, and so they were living and working in a, a habitat that was built specifically for that study that mimicked in some ways the types of habitats that we might be seeing people living and working in on Mars. Right, and, and what the primary one, I would assume, being the requirement at all times to be in close quarters uh, due simply to be, to be able to breathe in, in an atmosphere that requires uh, a very controlled uh, uh, area. So that means that uh, cooperation is, is paramount. I'm, I'm looking again at the story uh, on, on CNN uh, that, uh, that says conscientiousness is going to be the key, the the trait of uh, conscientiousness determined to be more important than honesty, humility, emotionality, extroversion, openness, and agreeableness. The idea that you, you, you need to have more than the right stuff, you need to possess an eagerness to do the right stuff, too. That's what they mean by conscientiousness, I take it. Yeah, and these are very early findings, and um, our um, our sort of viewpoint on the importance of conscientiousness really comes from decades of research on regular teams working together in all sorts of settings. Right. Um, the research on teams going to, to Mars and just working in space is, is still in some ways in its infancy because, of course, only so many people have actually been to space. But what researchers um, at or other organizations like NASA are finding is so far a lot of those things that we know about teams seem to apply in those situations as well. The difference being that maybe the stakes are much higher, and so it's just much more important to make sure that we're selecting the right people and giving them the right tools to help them work better as a team. Because even if you don't necessarily come into a team with the exact personality profile or ability to work in teams or those kind of skills, there are ways that we can help people work through any of the kind of issues that teams generally have in order to really do their best and perform their best as a team. But you don't think about it much until, Julia, you see the launch, as we just did a week or so ago, of the latest uh, SpaceX trip to the International Space Station. There were four humans on that flight. They're going to be there for six months. That's a no-kidding assignment. You better be able to get along in a very cramped quarters with other people, or you, this is this one's going to go sideways in a big hurry. So how, how much screening would those individuals have gone through, psychologically speaking, before being permitted to participate? Certainly, uh, the psychological aspect is a huge part of the selection process and training process at places like NASA, 
you know, different space agencies around the world. Um, it's something that they've acknowledged for many, many years now as being an important part of the mission. And right. it's even named as one of the main factors that they need to figure out um, in order to prepare for long-duration space exploration, such as going to Mars, is working out those sort of missing links in the psychological knowledge that we have, um, because this is just such uncharted territory that we're putting people into. So we do have some knowledge from things like um, people spending winters in the Antarctic Science Station. Oh, sure. Yep. Um, and so we have learned some things from that. And, and one thing that researchers have learned is that when you're first put into a team, maybe for those first few weeks, everyone can kind of be on their best behavior. Mm-hmm. You might not have those personality clashes coming out because as much as maybe you might not get along with another person, you know that you're only there for a few weeks and you can just sort of grin and bear it and, and get along. No right. problem. But when you're asked to be put together with those people for months or years, um, things start to change after a while. And so we really need to have longer-term research in order to understand how those dynamics change over time and also to understand what it means to be not only working with your co-workers, but living with them as well. Our guest joining us from the University of Western Ontario in London is Julia McMenamin, who is the lead author of a study entitled Team Processes and Outcomes During the Amity 18 Mars Analog Mission. This study uh, became a story on CNN just a few days ago, and uh, Julia came to our attention as a result of that. And we're talking about the sort of research that Julia, who is a researcher in industrial organizational psychology and her teammates have been doing on people, humans, destined for long-term space uh, projects. And Julia, I was hoping that uh, in the second half of this conversation, you would be able to help us with some of the findings that you and your teammates have, have uncovered as they might apply to humans living through a pandemic in 2020. Yeah, so I think one place that other researchers in this field um, look to to learn about what those experiences might be like would be astronauts on the International Space Station, because, of course, that's been there for many years, and and quite a few astronauts have had a chance to go there and come back, and so we've built up sort of um, a a record of their experiences over time. Sure. And, you know, one thing that they're dealing with is both being very busy with their work, because they have a lot to accomplish there, and also living in a very small space, um, you know, crammed with quite a few other people. Um, but one thing that they're able to do, even in that small amount of space, is they do try to carve out some time for themselves as individuals and some ways to have some fun and relax while they're there. And so despite them being so busy and having such important jobs, they're able to make that space for themselves. And one thing that many astronauts have claimed helps keep their spirits up when they're there is just being able to look out the window and gaze down at Earth. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's beautiful and breathtaking, and it also sort of can ground them and remind them of home just by being able to look at their home. Um, so I think with how isolated we might be feeling right now because of COVID-19, and even our, our homes might feel crowded too because we're a lot of us are working from home, spending a lot more time at home with family. Indeed. We can still put that effort into carving out some time and space for ourselves and even, you know, just getting outside. We don't have to just look out the window in order to sort of get away from those four walls. We can get outside even just for a few minutes each day. Even as the weather starts getting colder, we might not think we want to do that, but I think this will be the winter that a lot of people bundle up a lot more 
and get outside and enjoy some of those activities. No question about it, Julia. We did a piece here on the show last weekend with a ski distributor and a cross-country guy, and he sold out. They're getting calls from all over Canada here in Vancouver going, what have you got left? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. So again, people are being proactive, recognizing that there is going to be any, we're not going to be able to do any traveling or any of that kind of stuff, but we're going to need to stay occupied. Now, it's difficult to imagine a guy like Chris Hadfield or any of those other space people up there at the ISS, and you said it's a very busy responsibility, etc. But I'm sure, especially if you're there for months, you do have moments of boredom. Have you done debriefs with astronauts from the ISS and asked them specifically, what happens when you get bored? What do you do? So I haven't spoken specifically um, myself with any of them, but um, what other researchers and and other sort of um, articles and books that other astronauts have put out, um, you know, they're able to do things. Chris Hadfield's a good example. I believe he brought his guitar up there. That's true. Yeah, right. And, you know, and it's a way to sort of keep that connection with home too, because people can communicate with them and, and they can do those sorts of things where they're still sort of having an activity along with people back at home, even though it's remote. And that's something we're all trying to adjust to ourselves. A lot of people have done a lot of activities online, over Zoom, over FaceTime that maybe you didn't think were possible, but, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. True. Um, but going to Mars is going to be a different story. It's it's such a long journey. It's such a high, a long distance that at some point the Earth will be so far away that they, they can't even see it. Um, and instead of being incredibly busy, they, they might be facing long periods of boredom True. during the trip because it's such a long journey. So they'll need to do things along the way, like exercise their bodies in order to keep in good enough condition to function once they get to Mars and even once they return to Earth. Um, and they're going to have to find other ways to fill their time that might be, you know, training, learning a new skill along the way, just in order to keep their mind sharp. And so that's something we can kind of relate to as well during this time during COVID-19 when maybe our a lot of our activities might not be going on. It's still important to try and find ways to train our bodies and train our minds during this time so that when things get back to normal, we'll be able to make you know a much easier transition back to our normal activities. Yeah, normal's not going to feel so alien. Uh, that's a good point to make. Now, one thing that we have seen uh, time and time again, uh, and, and it's pretty impressive when we see it is the efforts of teams and i'm thinking specifically of first responders and hospital teams working under tremendous pressure julia to respond to this crisis and we're in the second wave and their job has not gotten one tiny bit easier any advice for those sorts of hard-working teammates who who deal with relentless amounts of pressure it's they're under incredible strain and of course there's nothing nothing anyone can do to really take that strain away from them right now other than all of us doing our part by you know ensuring that we stop the spread as best we can mm-hmm. um in the meantime they're they're really having to do what they can to focus on self-care however that looks to them it might be getting out for a walk by themselves it might be just taking some time to themselves to just be alone and be with their thoughts or, you know, engaging in some kind of a hobby. Um, It's getting more and more important for people in those roles to really step away and and take that time to take care of themselves so that they can take care of the rest of us. Indeed it is. Uh, Julia, final question to you. We only got a couple of seconds left. Uh, How convinced are you, having been through the the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, that we're actually going to make it to Mars? Oh, we're, we're going one way or another. There you go. <laughs> it's going to happen. We don't know the timeline, um, but it's going to happen. 
Fantastic. Wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, Keep up the good work. It's most interesting stuff. I'd like to have the opportunity to check back with you again sometime in the new year, Julia. Great. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure entirely. There's Julia McMenamin from the University of Western Ontario in London uh, and its fascinating study on going to Mars and who has the right stuff. A pleasure to welcome Muriel Protzer to the program this morning from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, where she is a senior policy analyst. Muriel, good morning and thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having CFIB on. Well, it's a pleasure. We uh, we uh, we talk to you a lot. Dan Kelly's a very popular guest. Laura Jones pops up here on the weekends regularly. This may be a first for you and me, so welcome to the weekends. Uh, let's talk about the rent subsidy. Uh, this program finally in place, but only now for a matter of, what, a week or 10 days and still very, very new. Do you, do you think people understand what this is about by now, Muriel? I really hope so. We have been asking for movement on the rent subsidy file since the beginning of the pandemic. It's one of those fixed costs that have been so difficult for small businesses to absorb. And the new program, having the money go directly to the tenant this time, really great improvement from the last Still some things that need to change, Um, getting rent to business owners who weren't able to claim it over the summer under the previous program. But I'm hoping that it's going to gain traction and that small businesses who so desperately need this help can get access quickly. Yeah, and I suppose the big the big difference is that uh, prior to this uh, new change, uh, if you were looking for rent subsidy, the landlord had to apply for the subsidy on your behalf. Muriel, do you have any data at all on how many landlords did not apply and any reasons they might have put forward as to why they took a flying pass? You've raised a really good point about the last rent program. It made landlords have to apply to the program itself so their tenants could ultimately get the relief. A lot of obstacles being put in that position as a landlord, first and foremost, uh, the program asked that you, the landlord yourself, had to forego 25% of the rent bill. So that's a hurdle any landlord would have to get over themselves. And then in addition, the actual application system wasn't so easy. It was about seven or eight different documents that needed to be submitted by the landlord themselves. That in itself could really just be a red tape regulation hurdle for them to have to get over. And CFIB heard from so many businesses in terms of, I'm eligible for this program, but I'm not seeing the relief. Right. So um, the the change came about, and I know Canadian Federation of Independent Business was very active in lobbying the government of Canada to uh, first of all uh, point out the fact that these they were hit they were missing the target on on a lot of these uh, well intentioned subsidy programs. How long did it take before you were finally uh, getting the feeling that a yeah it were, the message is starting to sink in, and more importantly, Muriel, they may actually do something about it. Yeah, I mean, CFIB's motto is never give up, never go away. And that's exactly the method we applied here. Uh, Unfortunately, back in September, we were hearing from the federal government um, when the original program that is called SECRA was coming to end, they were saying, that's it, no more rent subsidy. We're not looking at extending this. But we were not taking that as an answer because every day CFIB was getting calls from small business owners saying, 
I will have to close up shop if I can't get part of my rent covered. It's just, it's a fixed cost. I have to pay it. Mm-hmm. We're seeing additional lockdowns of businesses and I need help. And so that's why we continue to push. And fortunately, by November, it looked like the gears started to turn at the federal government and they looked into introducing the new rent program. We've had it open now for a couple of weeks here. Uh, so happy to see this change, but we're not stopping yet. Are you hearing from member businesses across Canada, Muriel, that uh, in fact, uh, hey, I, I got through, I qualified, I'm, I've been accepted? I personally haven't heard that yet, but I really hope we start hearing that sentiment very soon. I think there's a lot laying on small business owners' minds right now, especially as we do look across Canada, because there's some regions that are going into greater shutdowns again. And I think the anxiety as we start approaching the holiday seasons, which is normally the busiest time for a lot of retail businesses. I think anxiety is starting to creep up again and uh, small business owners have a lot on their hands, a lot to consider right now. Oh, it's such a tough time. We'll talk about Ontario in a second or two, but just back to this uh, rent subsidy, the improved rent subsidy program, Muriel, how long is this designed to last until? We will see it run into the new year for several months. Um, We're hoping that's enough to get businesses over across into 2021. Uh, It's our hope, again, that if lockdowns continue to happen, that programs like the rent subsidy program will be extended further, that small business owners can get the help they need. Because we're not just talking about the number of businesses here. We're talking about all those jobs that stand with those businesses, and we can't afford to let them fail. So that's why CFIB is going to continue working with the government and pushing when we need to to make sure that help is available. Now let's talk about the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, since we've already dealt with the rent one. Uh, give us a little background on that one and where we are this weekend, Muriel, please. Absolutely. Uh, One of the first programs that the federal government started looking at and one that was very necessary when we first went into lockdowns across the uh, across the country Mm -hmm. and we saw businesses shuttered. We saw employees having to get on support programs. There came a time where it was it was time to start reopening the businesses. They were getting their COVID-19 safety plans in place. But they were also having some difficulty getting those employees back into back into their doors, back into the workforce. And that's where the wage subsidy has really come in a lot of help for these business owners, because it helps recall these employees, get them back in their doors, get them off of those other more expensive support programs. And we've seen a lot of success for this wage subsidy program. Now, when it was first introduced, there were some very harsh thresholds that businesses had to meet in terms of revenue drop off. That's right. Yeah. Now we've seen the yeah, yeah. And, but now we've seen the program evolve where a business with any revenue drop can get at least some amount of money to help out. So that has been a really key element of the success of this program. Interesting. So what about the uh, the issue of, and you've alluded to it slightly there, Muriel, of, of getting workers to return to their old job and presumably at the wage they left when when this all uh, caused the doors to be closed. What about uh, the difficulties getting them to come back on those terms versus the terms they're currently on, which may include receiving a little bit more money than they used to make? 
I think this was a huge challenge in the summer for a lot of small businesses as we did start to see, you know, BC move into stage three of the reopening plan, yeah. the other provinces uh, entering their uh, different stages of reopening plans. And I think small businesses have been through the brunt of it uh, mostly. That being said, looking across Canada, only 42% of small businesses are at full staffing capacity. So that means there's a lot of people who aren't back in the workforce now. Mm-hmm. And that could be due to a number of things, uh, the business's capacity to be at full operations right now, um, just the, the sheer amount of sales they're making. Maybe they can't recall those employees. A lot of difficulties there. I think we were over the worst of it yet, but who's to say? I feel like with each day, it, it really grows uh, grows uncertain as to what's going to happen the next. Well, I know, and you don't even want to make any predictions because you just don't know what's coming next, do you? And it's such an uncomfortable position to be in. One other program, Muriel, and we'll take the break and talk about Ontario and, and a few other things. But one other program that I'd like you to just bring us up to speed on this weekend again is the emergency business account. This did include at one point a forgivable $10,000 component to a business loan. What's the status of that program this weekend? It has been a great program throughout the summer, uh, getting essentially access to capital for businesses. Right. They get access to that loan, immediately financing to help them float some of those costs. We've heard from our members who are small business owners how great this has been. But one of the faults of it was that there wasn't simply enough money. The $40,000 that they were receiving with the 10000 forgivable portion right. just simply wasn't enough. So CFIB pushed for that to be increased. And fortunately, we've seen that happen. So I've even heard from some business owners now who um, are starting to apply for that additional uh, financing there. So what the loan looks like is now a $60,000 loan, $20,000 forgivable portion should really help businesses get through to the, the new year. Okay, so we do have some of the programs, and however belatedly applied, they appear to be working and finally getting to those who need them the most. Is that a a reasonable analysis at this point then, Muriel? I'd say we're making a lot of progress. There's still some small businesses falling through the cracks, so it's very important we pay attention to those businesses. But overall, uh, CFIB is very happy to see the wage subsidy expanded, the loan expanded, um, the rent uh, program expanded. We really needed these key pieces to economic recovery uh, to move forward. So we're hoping that uh, they really do help businesses get into the new year and see to the other side. Right now we're in conversation with Muriel Protzer, Senior Policy Analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And if you go to their website, cfib.ca, one of the stories that pops right up at you, Muriel, CFIB questions how shuttering small businesses and sending crowds to Walmart and Costco reduces COVID-19. This, of course, a move made by the Ford government in the province of Ontario just a few days ago, and small businesses are getting creamed. As I understand it, this lockdown or closure of small businesses extends to December 20th. Please tell me I'm wrong. I wish I had better news. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is the reality that is happening in areas that have been uh, issued to go on full lockdown in Ontario, which is Toronto and Peel right now. Yeah. And it is incredibly stressful for these businesses, these small businesses who are doing their best to keep afloat, 
keep their employees' jobs protected, but are being told that they can't be open to the public while big business like Walmart and Costco has people lining up for blocks. And that's why CFIB is really questioning the nature of this policy. And are there, uh, is there any possibility for any, uh, any relenting on the part of the government of Ontario, given the fact that you, in, in your uh, messaging to the Ford government, you talk about the, the, the lengths to which small businesses have gone and some of them to hideous debt in order to comply with COVID-19 protocols, the plexiglass and this and that and all the deep cleans and expensive stuff. They've all done it. So, uh, and yet the government seems to think that's just not quite enough. Well, that's exactly it. We have these businesses who have put careful thought into their COVID-19 safety plans, not just for them, not just for their employees, but for their customers. Of course. Their health and safety is of top of mind to these business owners. And a lot of them uh, who have a smaller square footage are only allowing so many people in the store. They've got physical distancing in place. They've, like you've mentioned, the plexiglass, all these new standards. Um, So it's very disheartening and very upsetting to see the government put such a big divide that we've already seen between big and small businesses. And CFIB is really calling for quick action on this because we do have the holiday season. We're already already in it. We're entering December just in a couple days here. That's right. And these businesses so desperately rely on seeing the customers here. And we can't expect every business to be able to pivot online and sell their merchandise like that. It simply isn't realistic. Yeah, looking at some of the Black Friday numbers here, and of course they're not all in yet, but I did make some notes before beginning the show, knowing that I was going to be speaking with you yesterday in the United States, sorry, Friday in the United States. They set a new Black Friday record of $9 billion in terms of uh, money spent on retail websites. They're expecting somewhere between between 10 and 12 billion to be spent tomorrow, Muriel, on Cyber Monday. The other side of that uh, rather staggering number is a 52% drop in in person Black Friday shopping. That's a big deal in the States, and that's a huge drop. It absolutely is. And I'm sure, unfortunately, we'll see similar data coming out of Canada. I think so. Um, when you look, Yeah, when you look at consumer spending and how that's changed, um, RBC Economics, for example, they actually show that retail spending is somewhat at pre-pandemic levels, which is really concerning when you hear how much small businesses are struggling. It suggests naturally that most people are directing their money towards these big retailers, these big online names. Mm -hmm. And really, we cannot let these small businesses fail. Not only do they employ most people across Canada, they are such vibrant parts of our community that it, it really is disheartening to see this push to online when we should really be thinking local because uh, not only does that have such great benefits to our economy, when you see the images of these lines at these Black Friday sales, I don't know if uh, you've been online and see some of these massive lines going on for blocks at big malls, big retailers, yep. mm-hmm. um, that that can't be safe. Well, that's true. And so really small. 
Yeah, and really small businesses are are the safe alternative here that government really needs to recognize. Well, and the other part about it that a lot of people don't realize is that in terms of making it or not on an annual basis, uh, the last six weeks of any calendar year, Muriel, are that the deal breaker in the case of a lot of small businesses, especially small retail businesses, they rely on the Christmas crunch to get it done, to at least get them into the black at the end of the year even only a few pennies into the black. That's absolutely it. And I think it's so important important that we have these conversations and that Canadians become aware that wherever you spend your dollar is making an impact at that place. And so for a small business, you're reinvesting into either your community or a community in part of your country. And that can be so empowering. And right now, small businesses really do need our help. Looking at the data, only 28% are making normal sales for this time of year. And if we don't see that improve, we will see a lot of small businesses having to shutter. And it is, I think, everyone's responsibility here to play the part, to contribute to a local small business. Um, whether that's from your couch browsing online, a lot of them do have online stores oh, now. sure, yeah. Or going out into your neighborhood, yeah. Uh, that that's important too. That it, it is it's ultimately the responsibility of the business, the small business owner, to get in the game. And most of them, not all, but certainly most of the Muriel have websites, have developed an online profile, have curbside pickup, have done whatever pivoting is necessary to stay in the game. That's exactly it. Uh, They've seen already the competition that big online giants can offer before we had the pandemic. And if anything, that has expedited the process. So I do really encourage Canadians this year to see what local options are online. Don't just default to typing an Amazon in your browser or another big box name. Uh, Check out what local options are in your neighborhood. I think that's so important right now. And I I'm encouraged to say that I think Canadians will be pleasantly surprised. You can get such more unique products when you shop local. There's so many benefits to it. So I'm really encouraging people to try that to their best this year. You do a lot of surveying of your members across Canada, Muriel. Final question to you, and we're grateful for your time on a Sunday morning. What are your, what are your folks telling you about their sense of 2021? Small business owners in their nature are resilient people. You have to put so much on the line to start up a business. And we are seeing that in our numbers. Um, In CFIB's business barometer, we measure small business optimism for the future. And the 12-month indicator is in better health than one would expect because small business owners are hopeful for the future. They're hopeful that a year from now they will be open um, and will be able to continue contributing to their community. So that... 12-month indicator for the business barometer actually went up two points in November, reaching an index of 55.7. I think that speaks to the resilience that small business owners have. But again, the three-month indicator didn't move this November. It's actually become quite stagnant, and its index is significantly below 50. It's at a 35.2, which means that small business owners and small businesses, period, really need our help now. They're hopeful for the future, but they can't get there without us. Shop local. Thanks, Muriel. Appreciate your time. Good to talk to you.
Thanks so much for having CFIB on this morning. Take care. Our pleasure. Muriel Protcher with the CFIB. Joined by a couple of the dudes from the Dudes Club here in BC. We've got a couple of members. In fact, we've got a couple of the execs. Deka Everett is the national coordinator and Frank Cohn is the director of the Dudes Club. And we're here for a Movember update. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great of you to join us. Tell us, uh, first of all, we've got, we're talking about Movember, which is this uh, men's health movement that began uh, in Australia back in 2003. In Australia, uh, a mustache, they call a mustache a mo. It's a kind of a, a slangy thing. So Movember came together with guys growing mustaches to sort of bring uh, some semblance of awareness of men's health. That began humbly in, uh, in Australia in 2003. Now, tell us a little bit about the Dudes Club, gentlemen, and where you intersected with Movember. Sure, thanks. And yeah, our relationship with Movember began back in 2013 when they funded a uh, three-year evaluation study to measure the impacts of the program on men in uh, BC. Okay. And so through that three-year study, we gathered an incredible amount of really rich data, which informed our work ongoing. And then in two years ago, we actually traveled with Movember to Australia, met with our Indigenous colleagues down there through the uh, Institute of Urban Indigenous Health, Ah. and um, collaborated with a number of Aboriginal men's groups uh, on the ground in in Australia, shared notes and best practices. And we, uh, our our elder and myself, did a series of workshops with them on um, developing men's programming, and it's been a really nice relationship over the years. I'm sure it has, and to say nothing, a, a little side trip to Australia just never hurts either now, does it? Uh, Frank, Absolutely. Frank, tell us about the Vancouver Native Health Society. This said uh, the Dudes Club, as I understand it at least, began it, it, with the Vancouver Native Health Society about 10 years ago, right? Yeah, right in the middle of the downtown east side with a group of men who uh, were and continue to be the voice that guides our work. And so we were partnered with uh, Vancouver Native Health Society. They continue to be a strong uh, community agency and partner. Uh, We worked under their umbrella for about five years, and then we shifted and were under the umbrella of the Canadian Men's Health Foundation for several years. And then just uh, this past year, actually, we um, got our charitable status. Uh, Okay, so now, Deca, tell us a little bit about uh, the the network of the Dudes Club here in BC, because it started, again, like the Movember movement, kind of small-ish, and it's expanded quite, in in the 10 years that it's been around, you've accumulated quite a few members, and you've got a few chapters going on now. Fill us in here. Yeah, well, I I would say it's more of, you know, community sites, and so the, the Dudes Club holds a really strong and sustained presence uh, you know, first first and foremost in the downtown east side since 2010. And across BC, I, I would say um, it has grown pretty significantly uh, since 2014 and onwards. So uh, really building that, that strong partnership with a public and private, kind of mix of pu- public and private model with First Nations Health Authority, um, PHSA, Fraser Health, um, it's really developed into a brotherhood uh, of, of men who are focused on 
addressing uh, community or uh, men's health from a community's perspective. And it is peer led, peer uh, navigated, and uh, again, uh, really has grown both uh, across across the province with uh, I wouldn't, we're, we're climbing into, you know, 40, 50, uh, different community, uh, community sites. And, and uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Frank, uh, talk to us a little bit about, cause I, I don't imagine it was easy, especially at the beginning. Once you've got a sort of a buzz going on and, and there's, there's a place where you know, you can go and, and relax and be with people that you can trust and kind of a safe haven atmosphere that doesn't happen overnight. And in the, in the process of, of, of the, the point of Movember being all about men's health issues, prostate cancer and so on, uh, there is an, a historically rather significant historical reluctance on the part of male human beings to really mm-hmm. dis- discuss this stuff very much. They'd rather take a flying pass most times. So how did you get over that hurdle? Because I know I'm, uh, you're, you're there now, but tell us how you got over it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it takes a lot of trust building. And we have a saying, we talk about uh, men drop, leave your armor at the door. Mm, okay. and, and that's really significant. It doesn't happen every time, certainly. And for a lot of guys, it takes years before, you know, they keep coming and keep connecting with us. And then eventually they start to drop parts of that armor. Um, but it, it definitely takes time and trust. And, you know, it also, we have to recognize, takes... Um, special care when we're talking about our indigenous communities in Canada because we have such a long history of mistrust mm-hmm. and of, of abuse of trust and of uh, a segregated healthcare system that just didn't work for many men and that caused many men to really actively avoid engagement with healthcare. And so that's something that we're trying to now take health to where men are rather than expecting that men will immediately be able to overcome those obstacles and, and you know, come in and, and sit with a doctor. Yeah, interesting. And I suppose that, I mean, this, the very simple, for some, uh, notion of, of growing a mustache. Uh, most guys can do that without too, too much work. Uh, and uh, there, it's a sort of a universal barrier breaker in some ways, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, humor is huge in our work and it's one of those pieces. A lot of us look ridiculous in a mustache. Yes. And and so it's one of those great pieces where, you know, some of the guys do it, some of them don't. And we all joke about it and and it draws attention. And the reason I point this out is simply because, as I said, for some guys, uh, growing a mustache is, is not, <laughs> not too much. But for, in my case, in my fam- there are two guys in my family, right? My brother can lie down and have a nap for an hour and a half and wake up with a full beard. I lie down for, for, for months and months and try to go a mustache and just look like uh, I should just wipe my nose, please. So uh, it, it just isn't as easy for some as it is for others. But it's the effort, right? It's the spirit of the effort that matters more, especially during most. November, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I also think uh, it, one of one of the really interesting pieces in in a lot of the the work that Dudes Club does as well is to to acknowledge that there is huge diversity in men's health, and uh, we have to be uh, you know all encompassing and uh, understand that you know the relationship with um, the different um, you know gender gender identities and marginalized groups who who may also struggle to grow facial hair, yes. uh, such as, you know, such as trans, trans men. And so it's ensuring that, um, you know, the work that we do is, is engaged, inclusive, and, 
and continues to, you know, center around men's health. However, those individuals uh, may identify what men's health is. We're, sure. we're there to support those conversations ongoing. Well, that's the important part, isn't it? The fact that whatever the issue may be, whether it's prostate cancer or any any one of a, a full spectrum of, of men's health matters, mental health being important these days, too, uh, there's at least now a forum in which individuals can, can go and feel pretty comfortable about, you know, even asking questions. And when it comes to your health, there's no such thing as a stupid question, is there? Absolutely not. And I think one of the the largest pieces is just to have individuals start to get comfortable with discussing health, with with normalizing health conversation uh, from peer to peer uh, family within family or within a community setting. So now let's talk a little bit about Dudes Club. Uh, it has uh, been around for 10 years or so. It uh, started out with, as you pointed out, on the downtown east side with the Vancouver Native Health Society. Are you still accepting members? And what are the criteria? Where do you go? Well, I think uh, one one big piece uh, around that is uh, we don't we don't determine who is a member and who isn't. It's it's really peer it's peer led. So uh, as as Frank had mentioned before, um, it is an open space for for men uh, or individuals who identify um, within within that male gender uh, variant spectrum uh, that we are focusing on men's health. And so, um, the, no matter where you go throughout. Throughout British Columbia um, or nationally, if you are engaged or see um, a dudes club um, happening, that we we encourage anyone uh, anyone to to go and check out. Be curious uh, and and connect with you know connect with the different the different sites. And we 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 try to refrain to stay away from program because it's not a program. It's it's more community led initiative. Exactly. Well, I appreciate the information this morning, guys. Got to keep up the good work, and uh, you get to shave uh, tomorrow night if you want. <laughs> after November ends tomorrow after supper, uh, Dega Everest and Frank Cohn. Thanks very much, guys, for for joining us this morning, and our best to your fellow members in the Dudes Club. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Our pleasure entirely. Looking at a column up from the North Shore News a couple of days ago, sitting at my desk, I actually laughed out loud when I saw the title. The title was, How Messed Up Will We Be When This Pandemic Is Over? The subheader reads, Grocery Store Bouncers, Awkward Mask Chats. We're all into some weird stuff right now. Written by North Shore News sports guy and columnist, Andy Prest, who joins us this morning to we'll talk a little bit more about the column uh, of a few days ago. Andy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. Grocery store bouncers. That, that's a good place to start. I mean, uh, that's a kind of a new phenomenon. I'm, you, you, it's uh, pretty common now to go on a busy shopping morning, particularly to any major grocery store in the lower mainland, Andy, and see a lineup with somebody at the door with one of those little counter things. And you don't go in until somebody comes out. No, it's important. That's the biggest growth industry we've got in, in COVID-19 is the grocery store bouncer. That, that guy, he's, yeah, yeah, two tours of Afghanistan. Yeah, RCMP gang unit. Yeah, I was a Navy SEAL. And then, yeah, yeah, I did a, I did a stint at the door at Save on Foods. 
And which was the most dangerous assignment? Still to be determined, oh I suppose. Eh? <laughs> Traumatic. Indeed. Sorry. So, so and, and you, you, you talk a lot about being in the store because that's where uh, a lot of us have our social encounters. And frankly, Andy, because uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and others have advised that, uh, particularly as this second wave crashes over us, that uh, staying indoors and staying within your very small little bubble is, is the preferred way to get around. So when we do interact with other people it's usually in a in a grocery store or some other service venue like that isn't it that's the only place we go (laughs) that's the only place we can go (laughs) and so now we start getting really worried about distancing that you you wrote about this in the column and it's quite it's, it's a funny piece but we are quite strict in our distancing some of us and we get really upset when people aren't and that are get that get a little too close well, like there's circles on the floor, right? That's right. And there's always that guy. There's the guy who just won't stand in the circle. He's like one step in front of the circle. It's like, guy, it's right there on the floor. <laughs> like I could see. And, and this is this is our lives right now, right? This right. is how weird we are. We all know exactly what two meters is. We can all picture it right now. Exactly. And it's like, buddy, you're a meter 75 tops, like maybe a meter and a half. And, you know, like, I would come and fight you right now if I could get within two meters of you. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that bugs you, and me too, and a lot of other people, is the fake mask. I mean, it's, it's a real mask, but a lot of people, you see them either wearing it literally, Andy, as a chin guard, or, <laughs> or, or, or they cover their mouth and leave their nose wide open. So why bother? The nose, right? Yeah, my wife loves that one. She she put the picture in my mind of someone at the beach wearing a, a, a bathing suit, a man at the beach wearing the bathing suit, but it's just dropped down a little lower and something is hanging out. You know, it's like, that's not really doing the job, buddy. Mm-hmm. And, and it looks awful, too. I mean, it, it just looks like someone is going out of their way to kind of, uh, you know, flout the regs. That's right. Yeah. Mask lives. That's what we all live right now. And we're all experts in it. (laughs) And when we go to any one of these establishments, whether it's a grocery store or some kind of other retail outlet, we we get held up at the door, first of all, because you they have to control the number of people inside. It all makes perfect sense under the rules. So you wait your turn. And when you go in, uh, the first thing you do is hit the sanitizer station before you grab your basket and and go pick up your items and uh, the sanitizer station is a whole other thing in, in your column as well. You, 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 you're not a fan of sanitizers. Well, <laughs> I, I had one bad experience. I came away from the sanitizer and walking through the store. I was like, wow, did someone, did someone get sick in here? It smells just awful. Oh. And I, I realized it was my hands and I, I don't know if they had a vomit scented sanitizer or what, but <laughs> I think we've all hit just the awful sanitizer. <laughs> and the other the other thing you talk about is when you do go to these uh, stores and uh, you go about your shopping, inevitably you're going to run into someone you know. And uh, probably, uh, you, what's the first human instinct when you see someone? You know, hey, how you doing? And and and, and you, uh, but you have we have to temper our reactions to familiar faces and voices uh, when we're out. So talk about because you wrote about this and so when you when you see a person you know your initial reaction is nice and warm and then you realize uh-oh uh maybe not so close for openers. the worst thing 
Yeah, the worst thing is if it's someone you really like. If it's someone you don't don't like, you're like, hey, COVID, buddy. Yeah, sorry, I I gotta go. You know, I got I got business to take care. Of. But if someone you really like, you really want to catch up with them. You want to chat. You know, you want to find out what's going on. But there's that thing in the back of your mind, right? And you stop, and you're two meters away, and then it, inevitably they inch forward. Mm-hmm. So you take a tiny step back, and then you're still chatting. And you take another tiny little step back. They take a tiny little step forward. You're doing this like weird sort of dance where you're trying to keep that two meters right. because it's emblazoned in our brains now, right? Right. And like chatting, it 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 used to be normal, right? It it used to be something we all love to do. But in the back of our minds right now, everyone's thinking, you know what? I wonder if one of us is killing the other one's grandma right now. <laughs> it just sort of changes the the dynamic of the conversation, doesn't it? It certainly does. It certainly does. There's no question about it. Uh, and 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 you write. And now your friend thinks you're a weirdo, and you are a weirdo because this whole pandemic has made you a weirdo. <laughs> and, and it's true because we're all weird. Uh, we've had, we've been asked uh, quite seriously and for quite a prolonged period of time, Andy, by serious thinking people. We've been asked calmly and kindly to change our behavior, and we have. We have. We, it's like it's literally changed our personalities, our behaviors. And, I, like, don't get me wrong. I get it. And sure. I'm following it. And I want us all to follow it because I want to get back to normal. Right. It's like, it's like it, it, it just it makes you wonder what normal is going to be like, how much of this stuff is going to stick with us. I know forever we're going to have exactly two meters emblazoned in our mind. Like, how are we going to greet each other after this is all over, though? Like, are, are we still going to be awkward? Is, are, are, is anyone going to still do an elbow bump? Or are we just going to go in like the complete opposite direction and it's open mouth kisses for everyone? <laughs> well, that, that may be a bit extreme, but we are kind of, pan, we are kind of pent up, aren't we? There's, there's, there's been a lot of, of, of hugging, even just the basic human hug that has been foregone for quite a long time. I'm 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 in my uh, bedroom wearing the same jogging pants and hoodie that I've worn for this for the past six months every single day. <laughs> oh man! So That's so our lives. yeah, right. So ward, road, wardrobe spiffing is going to be a big part of returning to normal. When do you think that's going to happen, Andy? When do you when do you see all of this kind of leveling off? Uh, well, I'm no expert. We, uh, but I hope. I hope by next September, that's, yeah. that's the latest I've heard is that, you know, we're all getting our shots in the next three, four, five months and they're going through and we're waiting and we're getting more shots and we're being all cool about it. And then maybe the kids are back in school for, for next year, for next September. And, you know, I could wait, you know, I could wait, I could stick it out. You know, I've got, I've got my potato chips. I've got my vodka. You're almost a pro. <laughs> We'll get through this. <laughs> <laughs> Potato chips and vodka. There you go. Andy Prest, it's a great column. Lots of fun. How messed up will we be when this pandemic is over? You can read it at the North Shore News. Andy writes a couple of columns a week uh, from such a serious perspective, too. Thanks for this. Great to meet you. Yeah. And, oh, and we, we appreciate you joining us this morning.
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, indeed, our pleasure as well. Pleasure to welcome Michelle Rempel-Garner to the program. Michelle is the Member of Parliament for Calgary Nose Hill. She is the Opposition Health Critic or Shadow Minister for Health in the O'Toole government to be as they would view it. Michelle, good morning and welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's talk vaccines. You've been talking in the House of Commons about vaccines and to Canadians from coast to coast about it this week. And so is the government of Canada, mostly the prime minister. And the conclusion that most Canadians are able to draw so far is that there's not much of a plan yet. What's yours? Well, for the last several weeks, we've been asking the government for three very clear action items to get us through the situation that we're in right now. Number one, um, federal uh, a way of collecting data on a federal level to understand what measures are working to prevent the spread of COVID and what aren't so that we can better target our interventions. The second thing is widespread access to rapid testing mm-hmm. so that we can uh, keep people safe. The last thing on vaccines we need a plan. We don't have one right now. We need to know things like how many doses the provinces are getting when, how it's going to be deployed, who gets it in, in what order, and so that we can start educating the Canadian public, especially given that many countries around the world are just days away from starting to deploy the vaccine in their country. Well, it's interesting. I've had some emails from uh, CKNW listeners this morning talking about uh, the United States as an example. They expect to begin vaccinating citizens on a priority basis, of course, before the end of December. Um, The same situation in the UK, Germany also possible before the end of the calendar year. These are countries, Michelle, in which manufacturing occurs. Canada doesn't have manufacturing. Talk to us briefly if if you can, about the Prime Minister diverting our attention away from the lack of a plan by blaming the lack of manufacturing at the domestic level on Stephen Harper. Well, there are countries around the world that are going to get the vaccine ahead of us that don't have manufacturing capacity. So it really becomes a question of why we're at the back of the pack, if that's the case. I certainly have some suspicions about that. Um, you know, I think the government was late in finalizing um, details on contracts. We're looking, we're trying to get some information about that. But at the, if right now, you know, anybody who's listening to this, they're like, look, just let me know when I can get the vaccine. And that's where our focus is as opposition, is forcing the government to, to, to make that information public to people so that we can start having some certainty. Um, I, I do find it curious that, you know, the Americans will be able to vaccinate the equivalent of the entire population of Canada uh, if, they, if their numbers are correct by the middle of January. Yeah. It, it's highly unlikely we're going to see any type of number like that for many, many, many months. And um, that, that's just not acceptable. The confusion at the provincial level is also a kind of astonishing. Again, the Canadians, we, we look to our governments for leadership and guidance and all of that sort of thing. So the provinces in turn look to the feds for leadership and guidance. And yet we had the province of Ontario, for example, and Christine Elliott, their health minister, talking about 2.4 million doses of vaccine starting in January quite comfortably. And then all of a sudden the feds are all over this saying, well, well, gosh, we don't know where she got 
about her numbers. So uh, uh, this this is not helpful. We see the pre- the premier of Ontario, for example, responding to the appointment of General Danny Fortin as the national supervisor of the vaccine distribution whenever it arrives. D- Doug Ford in Ontario gets his own general, gets Rick Hillier. He's going to take care of Ontario. So it's almost uh, you almost have competing rivalries going on, and that's just not effective or healthy. Well, what we need to do is have a very clear plan that everybody in Canada understands when they're getting a vaccine. I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but we don't need panic now. We need that consistency and leadership. It is the federal government, Justin Trudeau's responsibility to procure the vaccines, to sign those contracts, and then to ensure their approval happens in a fulsome but expedited way through the federal government. Right. Um, that needs to happen in order for the provinces to make their plan. Uh, again, just to, you know, compare it to the, to the U.S., Americans had something called Operation Warp Speed. True. This has been a logistics planning exercise for months, right? Six months plus. Where has our plan been? So, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that we've been able to put pressure on the federal government um, to, to make some steps. But I think the sad reality is, is that most Canadians won't be looking at uh, getting a vaccine until uh, months and months after the rest of the world is. So now the government also has to come up with a plan B so that we don't have to keep relying on continued economic lockdown while we're waiting for that. So this is why we've been pushing for things like rapid testing. But yeah, it's um, certainly been a Herculean effort here in Ottawa to, to keep pressure on the government and it's been a cross-partisan effort across opposition parties but it's um it's a bit of a cluster that's for sure well it is and i I suppose the thing that's most baffling to most canadians regardless of political affiliation michelle is that lack of a plan i mean we've been quite smugly looking down across the border at the united states watching mr trump turn states against each other in terms of PPEs and other supplies, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic. And then and then we hear about Operation Warp Speed, in which a vaccine is swiftly and promptly delivered. So that represents at least a plan. When it comes to Canada, where, of course, we've been quite smugly watching the chaos in the States, we expected, I suppose, automatically that that sort of nonsense could never happen up here. And we're more than a little shocked, I think, to find out that there not only is there not an Operation Warp Speed, there's no blinking vaccine at all. Yeah, and there are, there are a couple of big um, reviews that I've been pushing in Ottawa that Canadians can watch to get answers to those questions. We'll be doing some work um, with an industry committee asking whether or not um, a contract that the government signed in early days with a company called CanSino had any impact on the deliver- late delivery of vaccine here in Canada. And also, we did pass a motion in the House a few weeks ago to get this type of information out to the public. But while we're doing that, at the same time, we're also going to be pressuring the government to get that information to Canadians, when we can expect a vaccine, where, um, and also a plan to be working with the provincial governments in a much more coordinated way. Because, again, like this is not a partisan issue. This is a national emergency. It yes. requires leadership. And we need... like. Everybody needs to have the answer to this question because lives are on the line, businesses are on the line, we have a mental health crisis, and the situation continues to deteriorate.
We continue our Community Arts Center series with a look at the Evergreen Cultural Center. We're on Pine Tree Way in Coquitlam for a conversation with Jessica Fowles, who is the marketing manager at the Evergreen Cultural Center. Jessica, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm just looking at the website, and of course, dead center in the, on the middle of the homepage is the uh, provincial health order restrictions, and you mentioned that, of course, all of this is in effect until December 7th, which is still a week away. Uh, tell us, though, what you're doing, Jessica, with respect to COVID-19. How have, how have you managed to, to withstand uh, or uh, deal with uh, the pandemic and yet keep the doors open as best you can? Well, it has definitely been a challenge, and mm-hmm. I think you've heard that from everyone working in arts and culture right now. Uh, this pandemic has really had an effect on our industry, but as a nonprofit society, it's been really difficult for us because we also are really disconnected from our community right now, which is, you know, part of our mandate and what we love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to close our center right away in March when the first lockdown happened. Uh, And we were lucky enough to reopen in June with the Art Gallery at Evergreen, our visual arts curated gallery. Right. And uh, we started again with a smaller scale, intimate style performance of shows starting in September this year. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the theater. What's the typical capacity of the room, which I'm sure now is down to 50, right? Yes, absolutely. We are down to a maximum of 50, but usually our main studio theater space holds 257 audience members. Okay, so what sort of uh, shows have you been uh, getting on in front of 50 people in that theater over the past few weeks, Jessica? So the one thing we really wanted to do was kind of connect to this strange period of time we find ourselves in. Yes. And so what we thought we would do is do a fun spin on the idea of these roaring 2020s that we found ourselves in. Okay. And we created a new series of events called our Fall Speakeasy Sessions. So uh, we've transformed our regular theater from the general theater seating seats that people are used to to a flat floor system where we have individual tables for bubbles to sit at, six feet apart from other audience members, and nine feet from our actual performers. Um, And we've added new lights and changed the decor, so it really feels more like those speakeasies uh, that were really popular in the 1920s. That's right. The the speakeasies, of course, were highly illegal, too, Jessica. That's the other part we forget about. But you're right. They were gathering places where people went to drink and party and all the rest of that during the times of prohibition. So you've got, that was in the 1920s. So here we are kicking off the 2020s in, to say the very least, unusual fashion. But good for you for for deciding to to flash back 100 years and, and gather some of that energy. There was certainly no shortage of that. Absolutely. And like we say on our website, you know, you nev- we never knew if this events prohibition would return. And that's something that we've seen in the last few weeks with the recent um, public health orders as well. Indeed. So tell us a little bit about the art gallery. Now, it, it closed initially when everything got closed initially, but it was the first part of the Evergreen Center to reopen. And has it remained reopened since, uh, since you did? Yes, it has actually. So our art gallery at Evergreen is a lovely little space and it's curated by our curator, Catherine Dennis. Um, And we are very lucky to be working with all kinds of artists uh, with a local focus and a focus on contemporary arts. 
So when the art gallery closed, it was, like you said, the first thing to open back up in June. Mm -hmm. And we were able to continue our exhibition that had closed from the springtime. Um, Now, in November, we're hosting a new exhibition called Wayfinding, which brings together recent work by local artists Leanne M. Christie, Sarah Graham, and Devin Knowles, who all live and create artwork in response to the cities they live in, which includes the Tri-Cities. Oh, great. So it's really super local stuff then. Jessica, I wanted to ask you, because we're sort of doing the rounds of the community arts centers around Metro Vancouver. And one of the things that we've noticed, and you're a nonprofit, as you've said right up front, is that the community support and the sponsor support has been pretty consistent all the way through, even though there haven't been a lot of audiences to perform for or advertise to. What's the status at Evergreen and with respect to the sponsor that you have? Have they stuck with you? Absolutely. So one of the things out of all of this craziness that's happened is it's really hard for us to be away from our community. Our community is our volunteers, the people who walk past our building at Lafarge Lake every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really hard to have those doors closed and not be able to invite people in. Luckily, uh, some of our sponsors like Prospera Credit Union, who helps with our free family days programming in the art gallery, and Finger Foods Advanced Technology Literature, which has helped support our free school matinees for our school district uh, program, have stayed on and have agreed to support us long term as we continue to try and find new ways to make online slash in-person programming where it's possible. We also ended up um, receiving almost 50% of our lost revenue back thanks to people donating the cost of their ticket prices back. Isn't that nice? On their account, it's been, the support has been almost overwhelming for us. Well, that's lovely, isn't that? The people are donating their, the cost of their tickets back, and they get a tax receipt. It's a, it's a two-way street there, but it's, it's really a nice sentiment, and it really does indicate how important you are to so many people in your community, Jessica. I really think so. I think the arts and culture... It's kind of difficult. It's not really seen as a movie theater. It's not something as mainstream as that. But the community comes together so well, and we are so lucky to have such a diverse group of people involved in the arts in Metro Vancouver. Uh, and the latest statistics from Metro Vancouver say there's more support for funding in arts and culture than there is for a lot of other uh, community programs right now. And I think more and more people are enjoying art, whether it's live streams from the National Theater or it's a new movie that's being, you know, filmed and distributed through Disney Plus. I think this is a time where people are completely involved in the arts, whether or not they really recognize that. There's no question about it. Imagine life without art and music and theater and all that stimulation. I, I can't even go there. Jessica Fowles, thanks so much for this. I can I'm just send our listeners to evergreenculturalcenter.ca for all the details on the Speakeasy shows coming up. Uh, we wish you continued considerable success, Jessica, and thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. And if anyone is interested, you can find us at Evergreen Arts on Facebook and Instagram or the Art Gallery at Evergreen Art Gallery online as well. Excellent. Thanks, Jessica. Have a great day. Thank you so much.